Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom is finally back off the road. It's been a couple weeks. Thank God. Tom went to Florida last week for work, not for pleasure. Kind of like feeling like a caged animal at the zoo when you sit inside for meetings. And I didn't just have one meeting. It was like meetings back to back to back to back to back to back to back all week. And you're sitting inside and you're looking out at the beach and the waves and everything else. And it's like, huh, we don't even get to go out there. So if it was 85 here, Tom, what was it in Florida? About the same. Temperature was almost exactly the same where we were in Florida as what it is here. And you're done now, right? You're done running around. Thank goodness, yes. And you hadn't been home in a month. Yeah, no, that's about what I feel like. All right, so Tom's back, and then on the phone, we have Dr. Mark McConnell, who works for Mississippi State. Mark is in the Forest and Wildlife Research Center. Did I say that right, Mark? That's correct. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Happy to be here. Mark works with Upland Birds, and he's got a program that actually – Bronson Strickland, who we had on for a couple episodes last fall, Bronson put us in touch with Mark, and man, I uh, wish we had made the connection prior to, because I think what Mark does exactly fits uh, what we like to do here on, on our podcast. So Mark, looking forward to the conversation. But uh, I mentioned you working with Upland Birds. I also did a little bit of background on you. So I picked up on an article somewhere that you do have some bird dogs. So what is your preferred breed of bird dog? Well, man, I wish this may, this may get us turn off some listeners pretty quick. The, uh, I, for the last decade, I've hunted specifically with a, almost exclusively with a standard poodle. A lot of people scoff at that, including my father-in-law, who's a crop consultant in the Delta. He, he was, thought it was pretty funny at first. <clears throat> but for about a decade, I've, I've hunted ducks and pheasants and woodcock and quail with her. And then I just switched to a German breed called a Poodle Pointer, which is kind of a wire hair breed that uh, will point, retrieve, track, do it all. So I've I've got odd bird dogs, I, I guess you could say. <laughs> so how did you get into a poodle? My wife, when we first started dating, I, I got her a little lap dog. It was a Cocker Spaniel Poodle Mix, and it was the retrie- damnedest retrievingest thing I ever saw. And it was 23 pounds, and it's like a lap dog. And I said, well, I'll just train this thing up a little bit. I had done a little bit of retriever training before, just, just for fun, just put him through obedience training. And, and I had him hunt with him for a few years until he got injured. And I said, man, I, I looked into it, and turns out I didn't know this. I, I guess some people did, but I missed it that poodles were historically a, a hunting dog in Germany. That's why they were bred. My wife, shortly after that, we got married, and she had some issues with allergies and couldn't have a Labrador, which was, was my preferred uh, breed before that. She couldn't have a Labrador in the house with all the shedding. So I started looking into it, and apparently uh, there were people in the U.S. still hunting with standard poodles and trying to breed them back to that kind of to, to that to that utility. So I got a hold of one and uh, got made fun of all over the Mississippi Delta and all other <laughs> other states I've taken her hunting with her in North Dakota, Kansas, Missouri. <laughs> I've gotten laughed. At. It didn't help that she was red. I've been laughed out of a lot of uh, what do you call them? A WMA waterfowl hunt. You know, when you walk into the little check station there, right. And walk in with a curly little red poodle, you, you get a lot of funny looks. But no, we've we've had a gr- she's retired now. She's twelve. I retired her. This is her first year. She hasn't hunted with me, but uh, she was a great dog and just a, and of course a no shedding. I mean, it just spoils you rotten. See, Tom, you you think you know what to expect, but you don't. No, <laughs> no. And really, I mean, I 
I'm like so far down the list of dogs. Our dog is just a mutt cubed. I have no idea what all is in that animal, but she's fun. Those she's a good one. They live forever. Th- that's exactly right. And honestly, she was a free dog. I was yet another one of those free hand-me-down dogs, which usually turns out pretty good. At least it has in our household. Tom, we have repeatedly established the fact that that dog was not free. She <laughs> broke your wife's leg off, Tom. The dog is not free. Yeah, they're true, but you know, I really... <laughs> she... Okay, true. True statement, Jason. <laughs> true. She was originally, in the beginning, free, short of the fact that she jerked my wife off a bike in the street and Thankfully, she oh just my broke her knee and didn't break her neck. <laughs> broke, <laughs> broke, broke her leg off, Mark. I mean, for all practical purposes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Gracious, that's an expensive dog. Mark, give folks just a brief history of you and uh, where you come from and and what you do now. I'm from North Louisiana, a town called West Monroe. Did my undergrad at LSU in, in, in wildlife and fisheries management and. Uh, Came, uh, came to Mississippi State to work with uh, Wes Berger, who at the time was probably the leading quail researcher in the southeast, and I was obsessed with quail, not because I grew up hunting them or anything like that. They just they just fascinated me. Came here to work with him and did my master's at Mississippi State and kind of got into this precision ag research that we'll get into later and then ended up staying for my Ph.D., doing some quail research with Tall Timbers Research Station, which is a big quail research station over in north of Tallahassee. And uh, worked at UGA for a few years. I was in wildlife extension over there, kind of ex- exactly like Bronson guy you mentioned earlier, job description just at UGA. Did that for about three years, then came back over here and have tried to focus most of my research program on finding ways to help farmers make more money while also increasing you know wildlife habitat for obviously quails of most interest to me. But I've got research on uh, turkeys, other grassland birds. Uh, even delved into deer research a little bit when I've had to, but don't care too much. But uh, yeah, trying to work with, trying to do research and make farmers more profitable and make farms more wildlife friendly. That's what I focus most of my career on. Farmers are the, some of the best conservationists and naturally they like profitability. So uh, why don't you describe the program that you're mentioning with the precision ag and then the wildlife, the combination of that and the wildlife habitat? Yeah, sure. So I agree 100%. Farmers are some of the best conservationists out there. And in my experience, the, the I've, I've rarely met a farmer who didn't want to do kind of the most conservation-friendly stuff on their farm, but they were typically hindered by the, you know, the, the opportunity cost of, of not farming something. And when I started getting into this research, it seemed pretty clear to me that farmers wanted to do more. They just couldn't really, you know, you know, you got, you got notes to pay and you got responsibilities economically. So we wanted to figure out a way where it was there a way we could make conservation more profitable. And historically, wildlife biologists kind of just through farm bill programs, through like the conservation reserve program, those kinds of things in the farm bill have kind of just said, Hey, here's, here's this thing, go do it. It's, It's good for this animal or this bird or this carbon or pollinators, all this stuff. And I, ne- I never really cared for that approach. I felt like it it, auto, it it should only be implemented if it was profitable. So we tried to figure out how to make it profitable. You know, within the Farm Bill, there's a bunch of conservation practices, filter strips, grass waterways, wildlife habitat. Ero- there's all kinds of things that the Conservation Reserve Program, who some of your listeners you know may be familiar with, there's all kinds of things that they'll pay you to, to take out of production and, and convert to. But no one ever tells people what the economic outcome is. And that just bothered the hell out of me. So we figured out a way here to 
we had to dig into the farm bill language, which if you've never done is like reading your iOS, you know, agreement on your phone. No doubt. Uh, I used to use the reference, uh, it's like reading stereo instructions, but none of my students get that reference because <laughs> they don't have VCR stereos. Like I did when I was a kid. So now I say it's like reading your Apple user agreement. But uh, the farm bill is a tough piece of legislation to read. I mean, the whole thing, you know, stacks up, you know, probably a story high. So we delved into it, got all the all the pertinent information out of it, and just put it into a computer program that's very user-friendly. Uh, it's not targeted for farmers to work with specifically, but their crop consultant or their NRCS person or if they've got a, you know, we've got somebody with Ducks Unlimited or Quell Forever, which is, is a growing group, or National Turkey Federation, any of these groups in the southeast that you have, can sit down with a farmer and with a little bit of information from the farmer, especially their, their yield data, essentially, if they've got a GPS monitor on yield monitor, we stick that in, you tell the farmer tells them how much they're putting in per acre to farm that field. And what it does is it identifies where the, it creates a profit map based off the yield map and then generates an idea, gives you an idea where the farmer may be losing money in the field or where he's not making as much money as he or she may have liked. And then it, we, it asks them, you know, what kind of conservation issues do you have? Do you want more wildlife habitat? Do you have an erosion problem? Is something, you know, you have all these different options and the farmer can click which conservation practices in the farm bill they like. And it's got all the math behind the scenes and behind that computer screen from the farm bill in there. And with a click of a button in about 45 seconds, it'll pull up on a map a picture and show the farmer where in that field a conservation practice that's subsidized in the farm bill with a payment, an annual payment structure, will actually make more revenue than where the farmer's farming. Now, as you can imagine, we hope that's not a whole lot of the field, right? We want the farm to be field to be mostly profitable. But I've looked at thousands of yield and profit maps in, in my career and rarely have I found a field where there's not some little part where the farmer's probably losing a little money or, or not making near as much money as they could be through a conservation payment. So essentially, that's what it does. It just helps the farmer make an, an informed economic decision if they're going to take anything out of production and put it in a conservation program. I don't want a farmer to ever lose money on conservation. I want the farm bill to be the conservation programs to be an economic tool that helps a farmer diversify their farming portfolio. If you've got a problematic part of your field where it stays wet or there's a little bit of sand in there or just it's not a good productive soil and it's problematic to farm, it's annoying to farm, there's probably a conservation practice that'll fit there that'll pay annually for a 10-year contract to take that land out and hopefully not that you don't have to farm it anymore. So you can find ways to make more money by not farming your, your most vulnerable acreage. There's a group called Quill Forever and they have a saying called, you know, farm the best, conserve the rest. That's that's the approach they've taken. And, and as corny as that sounds, I, I kind of like it <laughs> because it, it kind of encapsulates what we've been trying to do for the last 10 years is just give farmers the ability to make more money on their fields, but do it by farming less acreage, as odd as that sounds. Well, and diversification is important. I mean, I think that's something that every farmer strives to do, especially when you consider that there are those subsidies that are out there. Now, when you talk about looking at some of those profitability maps, like how much of an acreage would you be talking about? That What's the greatest acreage that you've ever considered on any of those profitability maps that would suggest to take out of production? Uh, that's a great question. So we, we just published a paper in, in uh, the journal Precision Agriculture, uh, I think in March of last year, and we looked at a, a bunch of fields, 52 fields in, in Lowndes County, and 
what we found was there were just, I think, just two fields out of that whole scenario where the field itself actually was not profitable. Now, there's a lot of reasons a farmer may continue to farm a field that's not profitable, keeping their acreage up. There's all, there's all kinds of reasons for that. And that's rare. Rarely do I see a whole field. Now, that doesn't mean every acre of that field is not profitable, but overall, they're losing enough money on parts of that field where it doesn't overrun the parts of the field where they're making money, or it does. So you've got some feet. Sometimes it's the whole field, but rarely. Usually it's small parts of a field. What, what our research generally shows is across a farm, so several fields, as many fields as they're in a farm, about 5 to 8% of it could, could be more profitable under conservation. So on some fields that may be an acre, some fields that may be half an acre, some fields that may be three or four acres. But it's usually fairly small. It's usually these problematic areas. So when I show a farm, when they give me their yield data, and we, we put it through the software and it puts out, a, we ask them what they're putting per acre in that field and that kind of stuff, it puts up a profit map. They'll tell you before it finishes running where there's going to be what we call a red zone, right, a, a, an unprofitable area or a low-profit area. They can point to it on the aerial photograph. They know it. They, they know where, there's, where, they're, where they've got low yield. What, what sometimes is kind of shocking to them is how much money they're losing on it. You know? now, and that varies with commodity price, right? So when, you know, back in 2011 when soybeans hit $16 a bushel, in, you know, inputs weren't nearly as high as they are now. There wasn't a whole lot of acreage out there that wasn't profitable, right? Now, when soybean prices went back down and input prices didn't follow that, then a lot more acreage on the same fields kind of showed up red because the, the switch in that margin of profit had, had shifted, right? You're cutting, you're selling soybeans for $10 a bushel and you're still putting $500 an acre in it. That's a different, that's a different profitability equation than it is, you know, when you've got the same input cost at $16 a bushel. So it does fluctuate with commodity price. And we've built into the program where you can actually click at all the prices you want to simulate. So you can actually look at where that break point is. Well, at what point do you think, you know, bean or corn or whatever cotton prices might get where that's, you know, that's at that point, you know, that, that you may not be making as much money, but it's not enough for you to switch it to conservation. You know, these are 10 year contracts. We don't want a farmer to make a decision and roll it and then regret it. So what we found is the acres that are usually the least performing, the lowest prob- profitability or lowest yield, are generally quite consistent year after year. For whatever inherent, it could be a slope issue, a soil issue, all kinds of issues. But uh, we try to identify those ones that a farmer really doesn't want to farm anyway, or they they love to get off their books. And I've worked with some crop consultants, and I've said, look, you know, you're getting paid by the acre. If we do this, you know, it's money out of your pocket. If they enroll it. And they tell me all the same thing. They say, no, bring it on because those low areas ruin their averages. If you're cutting, you know, 10, 12 bushels an acre on a bean field and the, and the field average is 45, just removing that low stuff off really shifts your average up. So typically the crop consultants who we get a lot of our yield data from have been super supportive of it because it helps get really vulnerable acres off their books and makes their, it increases their numbers. Mark, step us through an example. So say just here's a soybean field in whichever county you prefer to discuss and just step us through an example of, all right, here's the map, the profitability map. Then where do we go from there? Okay, sure. Yeah. So like in Clay County, Mississippi, let's say you've got a corn bean rotation. You've got a a, a field, maybe 30, 40 acre field. And that what t- typically happens on the on one edge of the field is just a very minor change in slope, and, and slope even minor changes, as you guys know, it can be a really good predictor of yield. Right, the soil is just not as, as stable; it's not as 
supportive. It's just it's just not as, as high yield. And let's just say the farmer's cutting, on average, the field's profitable. He's maybe making eighty hundred dollars an acre in profit. But on those, that particular, we'll just say one acre to make make it simple. That one acre on that say eastern boundary with that slope higher, he's got a little maybe shading from the tree line. The slope's a little higher, a little wetter. You name it. Any issues that can reduce yield, he maybe on average loses maybe loses. Twenty thirty dollars an acre on, on that because the yield's not high enough to offset the, the the input cost. If the farmer from Clay County was interested in let's say increasing quail habitat, well, luckily for him or her, there is a a, a conservation reserve program has a practice called CP thirty three habitat buffers for upland birds. That practice is specifically designed to create quail habitat by planting taking that field that field margin out. And planning it to say a mix of native grasses, native grasses and forbs. Okay, so and they'll pay. No, your payment and CRP payments is based off your county average or your sole your sole rental rate. So prior to this last farm bill, uh, the average in Mississippi was eighty two dollars an acre. Uh, it's a little lower than that now because they they've switched some things in, in this new farm bill. But uh, let's just say the farm was going to get sixty five dollars an acre to just take that one acre out and establish it in uh, quail habitat. So he's not going to farm this one acre anymore. It's just on the on the edge of the field. He's going to plant it to native grass and forb mix. That's that planting is going to be uh, cost shared. I think up to fifty plus percent sometimes. So it's not the, all the cost isn't on the farmer. The farmer gets a sign up incentive payment to to enroll in that practice, establish it, and then he never has to farm it for the next ten years. But he's going to get a payment. Let's just say sixty five dollars an acre. And I'm I'm making this up as we go, but. These are reasonable numbers. $65 an acre for that acre every year for 10 years, and he doesn't have to farm it. So now that problematic area has been put to something else. It's off the farmer. He doesn't have to farm it anymore. He's getting paid not to farm it. And if he was losing 10 to $15 an acre, now he's making 65 So that's a $75 an acre swing in profit, right, for not farming it. And that's a 10-year contract, guaranteed. Nothing can change that payment coming in for 10 years. And gets a little quail habitat out of it, deer like it. Some people say it makes the farm look prettier. Some people don't like the way it looks. That would be the practice for them. We've seen, you know, really good responses from quail populations, even in the Delta, when you when you plant this practice around field edges. And for a lot of farmers, you know, I think the average age of a farmer in Mississippi is like 65, 67 right now. You know, seeing a cover, hearing a bobwhite quail whistle in the summertime is has got its own value that we can't really put a number on. But I've talked to all these farmers, and it makes them feel pretty good. So, you know, you get to see a problematic area, get off – you don't have to farm it. You don't have to disc it. You don't have to plant it. You get paid to just establish it to something else and, and let it be. And that that's a that's about as simple as explanation as I can get give. But there's it can get more complicated. There's practices for pollinators. There's practices for monarch butterflies. You can plant trees. You can plant grass. You can. There's just as the farm bill's got a bunch of different conservation options in it. And it's on, honestly probably too many. It can be kind of overwhelming to farmers. Hell, it's overwhelming to me sometimes trying to keep up with it all. But all that's built into the software so that the farmer can sit down with somebody and work through this and simulate as many scenarios as they can with their own yield data to find out what is right for them, what they want to enroll in. And then when they get that, they can take that to their NRCS agent and FSA office and say, I'd like to enroll in this. And then they take it from there. This may be stepping back a few steps, but what kind uh, or what level of yield data are you feeding into that? Yeah, we, we need the the actual yield data from from the uh, from the mon- GPS from the yield monitor on their on their combines, and you know it's, essentially it's logging a point, 
and estimating yield every so many feet throughout that field. We clean that up because, you know, there's some errors associated in it. We clean it up, run it through a, a cleaning process that uh, essentially that, you know, SMS developed. And we're following essentially everyone else's cleaning protocol. And, yeah, so it's the, it's the point level yield data of that field. And we, we, and we convert that to a yield map. And then we ask the farmer, okay, how much, how much input on this field have you got? You can, they can put in their base payment if they got base acres. Any, any pluses or minuses, how much it costs, how much you're getting, any subsidies, anything like that, we put into the software and you just click a button and it's going to pop out a profit map and then a profit map with certain conservation scenarios uh, on it. So you can see how a red area, maybe from low yield or a wet area, whatever, under it's red under general farming. Hopefully, year after year after year, it makes it makes farmers a little more comfortable when it's a when it's an annually problematic area. Uh, and then we can show them what that profit surface that map looks like when you account for how much they would get paid to enroll in the conservation practice. So what we hopefully see is we take we turn red acres green essentially because low yielding low profit stuff is red, high profit stuff is green uh, on our map, and we try to we try to accommodate get rid of as much of that red acreage as we can so the whole field is more profitable. And the study we did in uh, Lowndes County on 52 fields, I think we had about six years of yield data on most of the fields. We found that on 52 fields, 37 or 38 of them, I can't remember, we could increase profitability of that field through conservation. All of those 37 or 38 fields that we did improve conservation, the average increase in profitability was 26%, which is not, you know, you're not going to retire early off that. But that's not that's not peanuts either. Was that without taking any of the acreage out of production? That was with taking a very small okay. amount of acreage out of production. Only the only the unprofitable. So we call that economically targeted conservation. The rule we imp- employed for that paper was we only took it out of production and enrolled it in conservation if it increased the rev- the the profitability on the field. So we didn't, and the software shows you where that is. So 52 fields, like on 75% of them, high 30s, whatever that percentage works out to be, by just removing a small percentage of the field, you know, 1%, half percent, whatever the number worked out to be, the average increase in profitability was 26%. That's correct. It was awesome. not a lot of acreage at the end. Yeah. I think it was like 6 to 8% of the farm acreage when we were all done. And we actually simulated what would happen if we if we maximized the conservation. Like we put, let's say, a conservation buffer wider than 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 what was best economically. Just to, like in in the rare event you get a farmer who who just wants quail more than anything, right? And just using quail as an example. So we maximized the conservation potential, and what we found was it actually reduced revenue because if you push conservation beyond. That 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 threshold of profitability. You start you start planting grass or trees, for example, on productive farmland that's profitable, and they're and make it, it's making more money than the conservation payment. That's bad news, right? Or at least in my opinion, that's bad news because now you're you're losing money through conservation. So we only simulated what it would do if we put it where it was where it was more profitable than farming was. And we had several years of yield data to make sure we weren't. You know, you don't want to rely on just one year of yield data. You know, that could be a, a lot of things that could change annually. But yeah, so we called it economically targeted conservation, where you only enroll conservation where it's going to increase revenue, and you get less acreage out of that, less less conservation acreage. But my hypothesis is that that's going to make a farmer happier in the long run to make more money off conservation. 
then wonder if they're losing money off conservation. Well, and you're only talking about one county. I, I mean, I, I would I would suspect there's some substantial areas in this state whereby there are some fields that have areas within those fields that are not productive and have likely not ever been productive. And that's just as much driving around as we do. I mean, I think you probably can spot some of those places. It's a low area. It's always full of water. It, you know, something kind of comes That's to right. mind. Yeah, we've, got, we've looked at uh, prairie, several prairie counties, about five delta counties at this point. I'm heading up to uh, Kentucky uh, with my research associate in a month or two. And we're going we're gonna to play around with some Kentucky farm data up there uh, using this approach. And several, uh, I mentioned Quell Forever and their counterpart, Pheasants Forever, they actually have a national team of people. They call them precision ag, con- precision agricultural conservation specialists, and all they do is go around the country, working with farmers, implementing this 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 approach. Uh, and I talked, I've trained several of their uh, and worked with several of their biologists, and they're seeing about the same things we're seeing. You know, most fields have something, and but you know, and some fields have a lot more than others. But at the end of the day, I mean, I've looked at thousands of yield data. Uh, maps and yield maps and profit maps just in my short career, and I can assure you there, there's more acreage out there to be enrolled than we'll ever enroll. It's just a matter of figuring out what it takes to get a farmer to do that. So in those 20, that 26%, that was the average of those 70-something uh, percent of those fields, those 37, 38 fields. But the percent of how much each field increased profitability varied quite dramatically. Some was over 200%, some was like 3%. Now, I would never recommend a farmer take land out of production for a 3% return. That's too risky to me. But I'd start on that high end, that 200 and work your way down. And by my experience, every farmer's got a kind of a number, right? How much change in profitability they need to see before they'll make a change in land use, right? And, and every, I don't know what that number is, and the farmer may not know what that number is. But once they start hearing numbers, they start to get close to it. And some farmers, it may be a 50% increase, 25% increase. Some, it may be 100 but I want them to be able to have those options. And that way, if they see some fields, they, they think, hey, I know that field. Like you said, that field's got a big problem. Let's go ahead and do that. Let's start with that one, see if they like it. And then we can always try another one next year. You know, I, w- I just want the farmer to have a full understanding of the economic outcome of a conservation enrollment and not have to guess at it. And that's why we built this and took this approach we took. You've done a good job giving some examples from eastern Mississippi, the hills, the prairie, as you alluded to. If you bring that into west Mississippi, what are you talking about from a research standpoint, and what have you seen when you look at some of those profitability maps on production fields in the Delta? Yeah, it's a great question. We uh, we just had a couple of students finish up using this software for their for their master's research, and uh, both of them were in Humphreys and I think Sunflower County. We had dozens of fields and several years of yield data, and we saw about the same thing. And generally, when you use what we call this economically targeted approach, we can find areas where we can increase profitability quite dramatically. And of course, like I said, it varies by commodity price. What's interesting about the Delta is, it's uh, one, the soils are generally more productive, so they have a higher soil rental rate. Now, that's the base rate that USDA or FSA is going to pay a farmer to take land out of production. So because it's based off soil productivity. So if you've got higher quality soils, obviously the payment's going to be higher and there's some benefits there. But, you know, the issues are often different in the Delta. Usually it's more of a water issue than anything else. One of the first analysis we ever did with this approach was in uh, was in Quibbon County, and it was the southern edge of a field butt- butted up against, it was just a forested wetland. 
And, you know, so in wet years, the water crept out into the field and, you know, they had a really hard time. They had really low emergence and then even if, you know, but on, and they had really low yield. And then on dry years, though, that soil was just so much more uh, moist that they had just banger crops. I mean, just cr- tremendous yields uh, on, on dry fields. But when we asked the farmer over a 10-year period, how many years are you making money versus losing money? And they said, no, they, they lose money more than they make money. So we did, ran it through the software and looked at, but but in the Delta, you know, it's a little bit, you know, quail is probably not the most popular species there. And, and most people, you know, deer are more of a nuisance sometimes than not. So we looked at a wetland practice. So there's a wetland practice within the Conservation Reserve Program that'll help restore a wetland. And a farmer can take certain land out of production, do a little dirt work, and they can, you know, kind of get paid to create a, to create a, to restore a wetland. Well, in the Delta, something else you can do. You can, some people do this, some people don't, but you can lease that for duck hunting, right? There's nothing, there's nothing stopping. So you can get, you know, government subsidized duck hole, for lack of a better word, uh, to restore a wetland, take out an area of a field that is problematic in most years than not. And then, you know, if they wanted to, they could, could have sunk a pit blind in it or done whatever and leased it for whatever a duck, a duck lease rate is going for in the Delta. And I know that varies, but that was an example where it was just, too wet too many years some years it was really wet some years it wasn't wet at all and on wet on dry years like i said make no mistake that soil was so moist still they were having great crops but those years seemed to be hit or miss and over a 10-year period you can get the same payment from a farm from a from a conservation payment over 10 years or you can hedge your bets and make a banger crop two or three out of 10 years but lose money seven or eight out of 10 years and that was kind of the analysis we presented to the farmer. So it, the, the practice, the prescription doesn't really change in terms of our approach, but the types of practices in the Delta tends to vary a little bit. And uh, they tend to be a little more lucrative, especially if you got a really low yielding area because the, 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 the conservation payments are going to be higher based on the fact that it's more productive soils. Fantastic. Why don't you tell listeners where they can get a hold of you, website, email, telephone number, any of those things you feel comfortable sharing, Mark? Sure. Well, the easiest thing is just type in Mark McConnell, Mississippi State University. I ought to pop up somewhere on there. Uh, we're building a website uh, to deliver this software. That'll be up here very shortly. We, we've been doing this for a while, but I can assure you, wildlife biologists should not be in the software development uh, business. It has been it has been quite a headache. And uh, but we're almost done with that. It, the software is developed. We're just trying to get it out to where it can be downloaded. But uh, my email is uh, m dm380 at msstate.edu. But like I said, Googling me is the easiest way to do it. And uh, any question anyone has about this, we're doing workshops all over the Delta, all over the Prairie. We've got a research associate whose his sole job is to go provide technical assistance for this software and this approach throughout Mississippi. So if you if you're interested in it, give us an email or give us a call. I think my office number, I should know this, it's uh, 325-2144. We'll set up a site visit and be happy to sit down and help farmers you know, get the information they need to make the decision they want and, and take some of the guesswork out of the, guesswork out of the economics. That's awesome, Mark. Man, we appreciate it. Like we said, folks inter- interested in profitability, but they're also interested in conservation. And so I think that what y'all are doing is is great work, man. And and we certainly appreciate you taking time uh, to visit with us. No, I enjoy it. Thank you guys for, for the attention. Thanks a lot, Mark. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.